So we've been going along this road to the kingdom and um, as try to do every week, just review a little bit about how we got to, to, to this place. And we started back in Genesis and um, talked about how God had created everything uh, to be especially good for humanity. But then humanity rejects God. We reject God. And we reject what he says is good. And what we do then is we redefine good and we become enslaved to our sin. Again, this isn't a shock to God. God didn't, like, wasn't surprised that humanity would rebel. This has always been the road to the kingdom that he's laid out. And so we started to last week with, uh, with John's help, looking in Romans 3, we started to, to see that God made a way. Even though he made everything good, and we're the ones who messed it up, and we're the ones who rejected him, we're the ones who rebelled against him, he was the one who made a way. And thank God, literally, that he did, because if he didn't make a way, there was going to be no way. And so we come to today, you know, what is that way? Before we get there, you know, I wanted to ask you this question. Um, you know, what do we do when someone violates our trust? When someone violates our trust, you know, what do we do? Because we know what happens when someone violates our trust, it, it, it messes up the relationship. It, it sometimes breaks it completely. And, and who, who knows why they violate, they, the, the violation might have occurred. It may have been intentional, unintentional. But somehow they violate your trust. If you're a parent and you've raised teenagers, uh, you probably had this conversation at some point, um, conversation with your um, teenagers, which is, you know, you've, you've lost my trust. You've lost my trust. You know, I, you know, raised you, thought we could trust you, now you've lost my trust. And of course then we usually tell them, you're gonna have to earn it back. You have to earn my trust back. Well, that's what we do when someone violates our trust. What do we think we have to do when we violate someone else's trust? If we violate someone's trust and we get that understanding that that relationship is messed up. There's something wrong. Then what? What do we think we have to do? Well, we think somehow we need to earn that trust back. But here's the problem. The problem with trying to, to do that is that we presume that we have the ability to earn the trust back. We presume we have the love to earn the trust back. We presume that we even have the character that if we're just given another chance, we will do better. Now, maybe this works with other human beings, but it doesn't really work with God. God could give us a million chances. He could give us a billion chances. He could give us infinite number of chances, or as we used to do when we were kids, infinity plus one. It doesn't matter how many chances. No matter how many chances that we're given, we would never be able to earn his trust back 
Because we don't have the ability to do it. We don't have the love. We don't have the character. And yet, that, that idea persists, not just in people who aren't Christians, but even among Christians. You see, many people, many people, including Christians, you're humble enough, we're humble enough to know we're not perfect. We'll say, oh, I'm not perfect. But we still think we're good enough. We still think we're good enough. In fact, we sometimes make statements like, you know, um, with God's help, I can do it. Well, yeah, I guess that's an accurate statement if what you are doing is nothing and it's all God. It's not with God's help I can do it. It's like you cannot do it unless God does it. There's a difference between saying if, if God helps me I can do it as opposed to I cannot do it unless God does it. It's a big difference. And it doesn't seem big. It still seems like it's kind of humble. I'm asking God for help. But you still think like you can do it on your own. That's been Paul's point through Romans. He's shown how both the Jewish people and the Gentiles, they both fall short of God's standard. They both fall short. They both, in their attempts to, to try to be um, connect with God or some kind of gods, that, that they fall short. Even the Jewish people who are brought into this covenant, they, they still fall short because they still think that somehow they can do it. And God is saying again and again, no one is righteous. No one is righteous. And again, the first three chapters of Romans would be the most, the, the most dis, you know, discouraging, the most disappointing, the most depressing writing in, in human history of writing if we didn't have chapter four. Because Paul is going to show the way. He's going to show the way. You see, the way we think is, okay, all right, I didn't know that we had done this to God. Now I know. So now I'm going to try to earn my way back. Well, just understand, Paul has shown why that way is, is shut. It is impossible. You cannot earn your way back. And it's not because necessarily that the problem is insurmountable, and it's not because, you know, God can't do whatever God does. It's because of our inability. We cannot do it. And so that's the way we would, we would want, because that's the way we expect. When someone violates our trust, we want them to earn it back. When we violate someone's trust, we want to somehow earn it back. Instead, God does something very unexpected. It's an unexpected way back. I thought of an allusion to the Hobbit and say the unexpected journey, but it didn't really fit. But instead, it's an unexpected way, not the way we would think, not the way we would do. 
You see, in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, the, when, we went, when, we were, when we were looking back in Genesis, the story we have is Adam and Eve can see God. Not see him and see him, but they, they can fellowship with God. They have personal experience, real experience with God. And yet they still rejected him. They still rebelled against him. Here's the unexpected way back. Instead of starting in the garden and, and being able to see, we need to believe in that which we cannot see. We need to have faith in that which we cannot see. That we certainly cannot experience the way Adam and Eve were. It's not expected. It's unexpected. And I want you to keep that in your head because when we look at, when we read the text in a minute, when we read it, the thing that we cannot see is not what you think. Because most of you right now are thinking like, the thing you ca- I cannot see, I cannot see God because they could see God. But that's not actually the thing we cannot see. So I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I, and I need to read the whole chapter for, for the main reason is because the way Paul writes, he kind of weaves all this together, and it's hard to just, you know, Paul, if he had known I was trying to make a three-point sermon, he'd have written this completely differently. And I don't know why Paul is mean like that, but he is. And so I need to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to go back to it. So chapter 4, and remember, um, you know, how John ended last week with chapter 3, when he, you know, um, Paul had presented this whole idea of righteousness through faith, and then he ended in verse 31, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And Paul says, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. I think like that's like this big like kind of moment that when it was read it was meant to be read even like loudly by no means. And then he comes and he says, "All right, now let me explain. All this stuff I've told you up until now. Let me explain." So he says in verse 1, "What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh?" For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Those of you who are with us during Galatians study, you go, hey, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it's it's the same basic argument Paul's using again here. And he's quoting from Genesis. He didn't know he was quoted in Genesis 15.6. He just knew he was quoting from Genesis. But he's quoting Genesis 15.6. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
Paul is just exploding truth bomb after truth bomb. That especially to the, to the traditional Jewish Christian, it would have just been like mind-blowing. You look in verse 5, he says, he, the, the ones who believe in him who justifies the ungodly. This is just radical stuff. This is almost what we would, I like, call it on Wednesday night, scandalous. And Paul quickly quotes from, from one of the Psalms to help them understand that he's not just making this stuff up. It's there in Scripture. And the, the point I hope you get is that both in what it says where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, the only thing between belief and counted him as righteousness is an and. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that it says Abraham does. When it says the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, it just simply says that he justifies the ungodly. It doesn't say the ungodly did anything. And then in Paul's quote, he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Lawless deeds forgiven, nothing in between. Keep that in mind. He gets to verse 9, he says, is this blessing, so he's just told us what the blessing is, this blessing of being, of being justified through faith. And he says, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So he's, he's asking a question that still connects back to the Abraham story. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Paul knows the answer to the question. He's just asking for argument's sake. He says, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. Everything Paul's saying, all of the traditional Jewish people could have gone back and read and seen what Paul is saying is true. That chapter 15, verse 6, occurs before Abraham is circumcised. It says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness. It's kind of the way we think about baptism. We don't think like, oh, when you get baptized, now you're justified. It's not like you could have this moment like in the middle of the night or, you know, you're, you're out somewhere and you're like, you know, you, you, know, you, you, know, wanna, you believe in Jesus Christ and you're like, oh man, I hope I can get baptized before I die because if I don't, everything I believe is, doesn't count because I didn't get baptized. No, that's, that's, not what, that's not what we believe. We believe... Just as it says, circumcision is a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he already had. That's what we believe baptism does. But here's why. He says, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised 
who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the father that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's saying Abraham can be father of all, circumcised and uncircumcised, but what he's really father of is those who believe. Those who believe. In verse 13, he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no wrath, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We're going to come back to these in a minute, but as we're going through it, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss what he says in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. This is a point Paul's made before, and we got in Galatians. Why is Paul getting so freaked out at the Galatians because they want to add all these things? Because the Galatians are like, come on, Paul, we still believe in Jesus. We still have faith. We're just, we just think we need to do all these other things. What's the harm? That would be like me just deciding, um, you know, I got a vision from God last night. And what God said is, if you really want to be a Christian, you not only have to believe, and you not only have to be baptized, but you need to be able to pat yourself on the head while rubbing your stomach. And we become known as the patter rubber group. And, and, and that's what we do, and we all do, we add that. Is it really doing any harm? I mean, yeah, people are gonna make fun of us. It's gonna be on YouTube. Um, but is it really doing any harm? Well. On one hand, you go, no, because they still believe in Jesus. They still believe in the Bible. They just added this little thing. So what's the big deal? Paul's saying, this is the big deal. Every time you add something, you are forgetting the most important thing, that salvation, that righteousness is by God's grace. It is his grace to you. It is not based on what you do. It is based on God, his grace, his sovereignty, his love. Don't miss that. So we go back here, and, and he says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so, your off, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You know, the reason Paul's having to say this, the reason he's having to say this is because the, the, the idea that's coming from the, the, the Judaizers, the more traditional Jewish people who've 
who've become Christians or at least are, have tried to become part of the church and are trying to get all the Gentiles to follow all of the Jewish traditions, this is, Paul's having to explain this because he wouldn't have to explain this to the Jewish person. They would know all this already. But it's because people are being attracted to that gospel, just like we saw at the church, uh, in, in, in the churches in Galatia. The people are attracted to it because, again, when I asked the questions at the beginning, what do we think we have to do when we violate someone's trust? We think we have to earn it back. Or when people violate our trust, we want them to earn it back. We, we, we actually like the fact that, okay, we can earn it back. And so if somebody can tell me, if I do these six things, God will be happy with me, just tell me what those six things are, I'll do them. And God will be happy. We're attracted to this kind of a gospel. And so Paul has to actually explain this because he's, he's explaining this to people who might not have known all this about Abraham. They might not have known that when it says he did not weaken in faith, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, Oh, wait. Abraham was supposed to be the father of many nations and, and he was 100 years old? Well, he must have had a hot young wife, right? That, that, that must be... Oh. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Sarah's not only in her 90s, she hasn't had a baby in all this time. She was considered barren. Even then, he did not weaken in faith. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's crazy talk. You know, God promised you a child when years and years ago, and now you're, you, you're in your 90s and you still believe? That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why. Remember that. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. In case any of you are approaching your 90s and you think Abraham's promise is the same as yours, that you guys need to be figuring out how to put a nursery up in your house, if God actually promises you that, I will stand with you and believe, okay? And I will, you know, we'll have baby dedication. But that was a promise to Abraham. Paul saying, the promise to us is different. It's not about having a baby when we're in our 90s and becoming the father of many nations. Instead, he says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our, trans our trespasses and raised for our justification.
We look at this chapter 4 and Paul is, he's laid out, he's pointed towards the way. And it's the unexpected way. It's the way of faith. And so if we go back and look at this, this text, you know, it seems like, well, we should understand what faith is. You know, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by faith? And, and in the, talking about Abraham's faith, so what do we mean by Abraham's faith? Well, the first thing is that we see here is that the faith is our confession that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. You want Abraham's faith? Abraham's faith is exactly that. He believed in the promise of God, which meant he believed in God and he believed God would do what he promised. That's why in verse 3 it says Abraham believed. You know, we get the little formula. We get that short, you know, that short little formula and, and then we don't necessarily want to know the context. Oh, faith, belief. Okay, we just have faith in anything. Believe hard enough and God will bless us. No. If we want Abraham's faith, Abraham's belief, we've seen what it looks like. We're going to take another look at it in a second. But it's because of that God reckoned to him, accounted to him righteousness. Again, not what we would expect. You know, why didn't Abraham have to do some kind of penance? Why didn't Abraham have to prove, prove his faith to God first? You know, why, why doesn't it say like, okay, you know, after Abraham finally has a son, God says, we'll go kill him. God, wait a minute. How can I kill him and be the father of many nations? Uh, are you going to give me another son? At this point, he's over 100. It would totally make sense with our theology if after Abraham took Isaac up to the altar to sacrifice him and then God says, no, don't, sac- don't, don't do it. Here, I got the ram. Do the ram instead. It would be t- make total sense to us in our version of Christianity, our version of, of working our way back to God, for God to say, because of your obedience to me, willingness to sacrifice your son, you're now righteous. That would make sense to us. This makes no sense to us. Abraham believed, and God credited to him his righteousness. God reckoned him as righteousness. And and Paul then takes it beyond Abraham in verse 4, and that's that radical statement, that scandalous statement, that God would justify the ungodly that he justifies them not after they become godly, not after they've gotten through the first couple stages of godliness, and then he's like, okay, it looks like it's going to take on you. Okay, I'll do the rest. It's like, no. He justifies the ungodly before they become godly, before they become obedient. You see, there's another part of us that doesn't like this. Not just the part of us that wants to kind of feel like we've earned something, that we've worked for something, but there's another part of us that wants to say, that's not fair. That's not fair. You know, there's the part of us that, that you know, we talked about this on Wednesday night, that, you know, if, if, you, if you show up in, 
You know, if you, if you show up, if you die and you show up in heaven and the first few people to greet you are like Charles Manson, Adolf Hitler, and Jeffrey Dahmer, you're all going to be like, I may be in the wrong place. I, I'm not sure this is the right place. And, 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 and we would think like, how can God do this? If these, if these people believed at the end of, of, of a horrific life, how can God just justify the ungodly? Shouldn't be allowed. And in fact, we might even start thinking about all the people who we know that aren't Christians that are really, you know, decent, good, kind people. It's still scandalous today. But it's because we don't understand. We don't really accept what John was preaching on last week. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That no one is righteous. That we don't even deserve existence and we're given existence. It is all God's grace. And so Paul, he, he's, he's like kind of giving the model that the, that the typical traditional Jewish person of the first century, not Judaism is a very diverse um, belief system, so not all of them, but this was kind of the common, you know, very strong popular view. And that is that it all begins with obedience. Obedience first. And then through obedience, you kind of establish the covenant and then comes righteousness. And Paul says, no, if we go back to Abraham, it's faith, then righteousness. Faith and God reckons righteousness to us. And again, Paul, Paul anticipates these questions that some people have like, well, I guess then, then we don't have to really care what we do. We don't, we don't, it doesn't really matter what we do. Paul's like, no. And he, he's not going to really unpack it here yet. And, you know, John and I were talking about this, like, oh, there's part of us that just wants to say, let's just abandon the rest of the road to the kingdom and just continue on Romans. But we have a plan. We're going to stick to it, right? So we, we'll come back later. So he's not going to do it in this chapter. But what he ultimately is going to make this point that, that if we truly have faith in Jesus Christ, and it's truly like the faith of Abraham, it will change everything. In fact, everything we do from that point on will either be a result or will be in response to what God does in us. Everything. That's why it's, once you become a Christian, if you're doing anything that's right and that's good, it's not, it's not just you on your own generating goodness and righteousness. It's God. That we're either doing it as a result of what God is doing in us or in response. Even when we think about the realization of our sin or repentance or obedience, 
All of those things are either a result or a response to what God is doing in us. And, and all of this idea is caught up in the word believe. And the second point that, that Paul is, is making kind of in that kind of middle section, verses 9 through 12, but really it's kind of woven throughout Romans, but he's saying all who believe, all who believe in God, all who believe in God and his promises, all of them will be made righteous. All will be made righteous. He, he, he goes back and he's like, he makes the point with circumcision and uncircumcision. He, he's saying, look at how God dealt with Abraham. We all agree, Abraham is, is the one we should look to. He's the model of faith. Well, let's go look at him. How did he interact with God? And so Paul unpacks that. But even if you look at this, what you see here is that the focus is, is on God and what God does, not so much on what Abraham does. What Abraham seems to do again and again and again is just believe and believe and believe. But I like that point that, that he puts in there and, and you know, he's, he means this for everybody, but he's specifically talking about those who are adherence to the law. But he's saying in, in verse 12, he says, and to make him father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised. So he's saying, you know, that circumcision thing, yeah, it, it's important, but that's not enough. It has to be that it's the circumcised who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It's, everything comes back to this faith and walking in the footsteps of faith. This idea of what did Abraham do? How, how did he show this faith? Well, we saw this idea of believing, but the other idea that goes along with believing is he obeys. He lives as though the promise is being fulfilled. It's like if, and, and again, if you have these thoughts, make sure you, they're from God. But it's like if you really believed God was calling you to a small village in Siberia, and you believed that God wanted you there by, you know, December, because, you know, that's the summer balmy time in Siberia, but you really believed he wanted you there. And you believed like Abraham? You know what you'd be doing right now? You'd be buying the tickets. If you're smart, you'd be buying about 10 parkas. You, you would be studying, getting ready, preparing to get there and then go there. That's what you'd be doing. That's what Abraham did. It wasn't just belief and then, I'm like, okay, I believe it, and I'll sit around, wait for it to happen. In fact, sometimes his action got him in trouble. If you remember, in Galatians, we read about Hagar and how, you know, Sarah's like, well, no babies, so 
Maybe there's another way. Maybe we can help God out here. But there's action attached to this faith. And we saw the obedience then even when he was willing to sacrifice his son whom he loved. See, this is the part I I warned you about, about what you think. About what you think is is the evidence that you don't see. Because again, what we, what we typically think is, like, oh, well, I haven't seen God. You know, God hasn't spoken to me in an audible voice like he has, you know, in the past. But what is this saying? Those who believe God makes righteous. The evidence that we don't see is our own righteousness. The evidence that, that we don't always, that, 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 that we don't, you know, even kind of be able to fathom is, he's made me righteous? What, what does that mean? Because it doesn't seem to be affecting my life. I don't necessarily see evidence in my life of God's Spirit, God's righteousness. And the, the lesson that we get from Abraham is we believe God has fulfilled and is fulfilling his promise that if we believe, he makes us righteous. And that's why what we see throughout this whole section is that this righteousness, as I said before, comes from God's grace. You see, the way of faith, the way of true faith, is an admission not that you cannot do this on your own. That's what some people think. Some people think like, you know, okay, I, I, I get it, God. I can't do it on my own. No, that's not the way of faith. The way of faith is that you cannot do it at all. It's different from saying, oh, I can't do it on, your, on my own, God. I need your help. I need your help because I can't do it on my own. No. The way of faith is the admission that you cannot do it at all. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. Faith is all about God's grace. It's about saying, I cannot do this. I cannot be righteous. I cannot love the way you love, and I cannot love perfectly. I cannot love my enemies. I cannot, I can barely love my family. Love my dog. Well, I'm not sure I do. But, you know, we we admit we cannot. It's not simply, I need your help. It's It's the understanding that I cannot do this on my own. I cannot do this at all. Everything I do 
if I attempt to do it, will end in somehow being ruined by my pride or my selfishness or my misgivings or my insecurities or whatever it is. I cannot. God reckons. God justifies. God fulfills the promise. That's what we read in this chapter. And we see what, what we see is that we see in Abraham this mature faith. And, and I want to make sure you understand that this is the mature faith. When we're new in our faith, I'm so glad God gives us, um, you know, things that we, we know, evidence of, of him working in our lives, working around us. But the mature faith of Abraham, Abraham in his 90s, who's, who believes in this promise that he's going to be the father of many nations, and he, and he doesn't have a son yet. The mature faith is not simply strengthened by evidence, but strengthened simply by knowing who God is and trusting him. For some weird reason that only someone who has mature faith understands is that, is that, is that Abraham's faith actually grew stronger. It says that he hoped against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. In other words, everything around him, he wasn't stupid. He didn't look at his 90-something-year-old wife and think like, oh, you know, it's, this, this could happen. Maybe tonight's the night. No, he's not a crazy person. And yet he still believes. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for a miracle. God is going to fulfill his promise, and the longer this takes, the greater the miracle is going to be. If, if they had had their, their son when they were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, it would have been more tempting to think like, you know, this was, this was us. But when Isaac shows up, he's a miracle. It's this mature faith. And that mature faith, again, for us, the evidence is, do you feel perfect? Are you experiencing right now perfect love? Are you perfectly righteous? Do you no longer struggle with any thoughts of selfishness? I don't think so. I know I do. And yet there's this promise that because of faith, God has reckoned us as righteous. And so Paul ends this by changing from Abraham's story and shifting it to our story. We're at the very end. He says, it's for those who believe in him who raised him from the dead, who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Our faith must be that God has done 
and will do through Jesus everything he said he would do. Our faith must be that God has done and will do through Jesus everything he said he would do. Everything. Everything that he, he said he would do to each of us who believe and everything that he said he would do for this world. That's our faith. That's the faith we believe whether there's evidence or not. You see, Abraham eventually gets evidence. In his life, it was no evidence, evidence. Some of us, it's different. God sprinkles evidence along the way. But let me tell you, there will come a time in your life when, when, you, don't, when you don't think that, that, that it's, it's happening, and maybe you're not going to blame God, and maybe you're not going to blame Jesus, maybe you're just going to blame yourself. But our faith is that God has done and will do through Jesus everything he said he would do. And why is this so important? This is so important because what ultimately this is leading back to is reconciliation with God, a relationship with God. You see, a relationship with God is not just a nice extra. That's how a lot of Christians think about a relationship with God. They think it's, it's an extra. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. A relationship with God, personal relationship, praying, really listening for his voice. That's a nice extra, but I got what I need. You know, I, I got that salvation thing, and then I got a place to come on Sundays, and I got some people to hang out with. I got what I need, and that relationship stuff's a nice extra. No, it's not an extra. The point Paul's making is, if you don't have that relationship with God right, you cannot be righteous without him. Your righteousness is not something you are doing, you are generating. It, the, the, the gospel message is not God is great, God is awesome, I'm a wretch, but if I work hard enough, I'll be less of a wretch and I'll be more like God. That's the world's gospel. The gospel that Paul's presenting is God is great, God is awesome, I'm a wretch. Believe in God's promises in Jesus Christ and he will couldn't come up with a good word, so I'm going to just make one up. He will unwretch you. You find Adam and Eve, what was their, their, their sin? Well, in part, it was this rejection of God. This rejection and saying, you know what, God, maybe you're not as good as you think you are. Maybe you're not as smart as you think you are. Maybe you're not as right as you think you are. Maybe your, your love is, is not as pure as you think it is. Our faith in the unseen God is the affirmation that, God, you are good. You are right. You do love. And you and you alone are God. And this is where, this is the faith. And people get so caught up in, you know, making things more complicated and thinking like, what are all the things I have to do? Well, there are things that I think come from a life of faith, but it all begins with faith. Just, just have faith in who God says he is. And if you want to know who God says he is, know his word. 
and live like you believe. Live like you believe He is all you need. Live like you believe He has forgiven us. Live like you believe that He has reconciled you and He has justified you. Live like you believe He has made us new. Live like you believe He has given us His Spirit. Live like you believe that we can love like only He can love. That we can love each other like He loves. That we can love strangers like He loves. That we can love the impoverished and the downtrodden like He loves. And that we can love our enemies like He loves. That we can do what, you know, I've said for the last couple of weeks, that we can love in such a way that we all become more holy. See, the hard part of faith is not believing God could raise Jesus from the dead. The hard part of faith is believing that God has done in your heart and my heart what he promised he would do. If that evidence is there, you are blessed. It's the way of faith, the unexpected way, not the way we would do it. That's the way God did it.